This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, this is Pete the Planner, USA Today money columnist and host of the Ask Pete the Planner podcast. When I'm not fixing the weirdest financial situations you've ever heard of, I'm stacking Benjamins. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and today we'll take a look at the sweeping history of money in America through the lens of one firm that's helped usher in everything from paper money to the railroad to the Pentagon. Here with the story of legendary private investment firm Brown Brothers Harriman, we welcome Zachary Carabell. Plus, Carnival cruise ships are finally back in Galveston, Texas. What does that mean for travel and Why are there so many cruise line ads on TV? We'll share all that and more. And later, we'll toss out the Haven Lifeline to Jason, who wants to have his house paid off before he retires in the next 10 years. How should he do it? And I'll have you all climb aboard for my railroad-themed trivia. And now, two guys who should get on the first cruise ship out of port and give me a break around here. It's Joe. Oh, and oh, J-J-J-J-G! It's incredible how passive-aggressive Doug can be. Hey, everybody, welcome to Don't Look Me in the Eye and Tell Me What You Think for the Win podcast. I'm Joe Salci. I have a show money on Twitter. He could just ghost us. That, that would be better. Across the table on a Wednesday... Happy, happy Wednesday, Mr. OG. What's happening? Well, not much, except Doug getting all surly there. I didn't know who had a problem this morning, but uh, how about you, man? You ready to roll on this? We've got a history lesson with Zachary Carabell. History. It's not a mystery. This is a firm that has been involved in everything. You know how people talk about the Illuminati? And the secret powers well, running things. Well, being, in the being in a the, member of it, we're really not <laughs> supposed to talk too much. But yeah, I understand. Now, some people talk about it. 
in the creation of many, many, many of the biggest institutions in the United States, this firm, this single firm has been there. And we'll talk about the early history of it today with uh, Zachary Carable. Fascinating man and a fascinating story about money and power. But first, we got a couple big headlines today. Big headlines. So let's get moving. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our stacking Benjamin's headlines. Our first piece comes to us from Investment News and is written by Emil Hellez. You're going to love this, OG. You sitting down? I'm sitting. What could be better than mixing annuities, phenomenal products, and Bitcoin? Bitcoin and annuities? Several insurers are working on it. All right. It's about time that we took the product that is supposed to make your life completely safe, way safer, and we add the Wild West to it. Let's just put a little... I wasn't thinking of it in that context, but that's exactly right. (laughs) The purpose of an annuity is to guarantee income for life. What better way to guarantee it than by putting it in Bitcoin? Though often written off as one of the most conservative industries, insurance is one of the first movers seeking to incorporate the digital currency and find new uses for it. Recently, for example, MassMutual plucked down $100 million for Bitcoin in its general investment account. And it, along with New York Life, Liberty Mutual, and Star Insurance, is an investor in New York Digital Investment Group, or NYDIG. Insurers see the potential for Bitcoin on both the asset and liability side of the annuities business, said Matthew Carey. U.S. Head of Insurance Solutions at NYDEG. Of course, we've had Matthew Carey on this show a couple times. Carey, who joined the firm this year after the online annuity marketplace firm he co-founded Blueprint Income, was sold to Mass Mutual by alternative asset manager Stone Ridge. I'm an entrepreneur at heart. The thing that stands out most to me about this market is the ability for this to be incredibly transformational for insurance companies, Carey said. It's an important thing for insurers to be out ahead of something because historically, that is hasn't always been the case. They're showing that they can innovate in this kind of environment where it's so critical that they do. Do you think it's, do you think it's critical? I'm super happy that they're innovating. That's, that's exactly what we need is innovation in annuities. That's required. Bitcoin, not required. What's amazing to me is that Matthew Carey is a gentleman who historically has said that annuities need to get back to the basics. I mean, his company, Blueprint Income, was all about getting back to the basics. Let's strip away all these bells and whistles and get back to what we're trying to really do, which is give people this income stream for life. And again, what better way to do that than throw it in crypto? (laughs) Do you think this is something that they're trying to do for like diversification slash profit margin type stuff? Because obviously insurance companies are much more conservative generally. They're buying like option contracts. And so like the stuff that goes on behind the scenes in your annuity would make a Robin Hood trader blush. But I think it just sends the wrong message. I mean, I don't know. Would you, would you be more willing to use a product that's supposed to be guaranteed income for life? Well, if it's got Bitcoin, you know, somewhere wrapped into it somehow, or would that dissuade you more? It would dissuade me because while I like cryptos and I like insurance, that's like letting your meat and potatoes touch and you don't want to have that happen. That's a great analogy, but you're right. 
they fulfill oh. two different roles in my overall financial house. I don't think of them along the, the things that it just, it feels reactionary to me. And I feel like the insurance industry has always been reactionary and I'll, and I'll give you an idea. And I don't know if it actually happened this way, but it sure seems to me that insurance companies started off with this thing. We all put money in a barrel. Let's say we all stand around a barrel and we put money in so that if somebody has a problem and they don't have enough money for it, that we can all kind of help each other, right? The law of larger right. numbers. So we don't get hit with a problem. Then we find out that some people are frustrated that this insurance is really hitting people at a certain age. So different people decide, you know what, we're going to make a product that only goes up to a certain age, term life insurance, and only insures the years that you need. But that first product that lasts your entire life so that it's not super expensive later on, they made it so that you had to put a little extra away when you're young and the insurance is cheap so that when you're older, those prepayments that you made in the early years subsidize the payments that you should have made in the later years. So when we hear the term paid up with whole life insurance, it's because you've prepaid the years that you're going to be paying for if you live a long time. But then I'm just imagining the insurance industry going, Hey, uh, you could use this as a savings account because people are, are going, you know what I'll do? Hey, insurance salesperson, I'm just going to save elsewhere into this account, earning X amount of money. And I'm going to save into my life insurance. And I'm sure some company went, Ooh, we could call it both. You can save and get your insurance, which I don't think was the original reason cash value was even created. I think it was created just to subsidize. Like I said, it was, I mean, historically, I've always learned that uh, whole life was created as a supplement for ways for people to save for their retirement, like specifically around education professionals. For some reason, like before 403Bs, That's that was kind of the target market. Yep. Yeah. Back in the and 40s I, and 50s. And I think that was already an abomination. I think that, I think even at that time, that was a reactionary thing to try to get more people to buy life insurance. And then, you know, by going to the smartest people, and trying to sell them on this idea that really shouldn't make sense. <laughs> and then as interest rates went through the roof and we saw that happening in the 1980s, insurance salesperson comes to your house, OG, and says, hey, I got this thing. You can have your life insurance and it's a savings account. Well, that sounds good, Joe. What interest rate does it earn? Uh, like 4%. <laughs> CDs are doing nine, pal. CDs are doing nine. So then the insurance industry regroups and they come up with universal life, which is a way for them to float it at interest rates. Well, then we know what happened then, right? In the 90s, interest rates started to come down. Policies didn't work anymore the way that they should have. But what was rocking in the 90s? The stock market was doing well. And the insurance industry regroups and goes, how do we get people to buy insurance? Because they're not buying this, this stuff anymore. I'll tell you what we'll do, Bill. We're going to add some stocks to the portfolio. Let's add stocks. And now you can, now you can have your stocks and your insurance and we'll put that in there. It just always feels real. And this to me, no offense to Matthew Carey. And we should really get him on the show to talk about his take here. Cause I, I just don't get it. OG. Yeah. It does feel like a money grab. That's what it feels like. It feels like this is the hot thing and we need to 
be one with the people, you know, like we've got to, we got to be doing that thing too. So yay, we're, we're into Bitcoin. Yeah. It's just, I don't know. No, thank you. I got a better idea. Instead of innovating in this way, let's get rid of all those expensive bells and whistles on the annuity and get rid of the way that we pay annuity salespeople so that somebody wants to buy them. Cause at its heart, it's a product that a lot of people need. Why don't we, why don't we innovate that way? Oh, settle down, Joe. Easy cowboy. We, we can't do that. Start telling the insurance sales guys they can't make commissions now. Come on. And there's the problem. Mm-hmm. Our second headline comes to us from CNN Travel. Carnival cruise ships return to a Texas port for the first time in over a year. Does this mean it's over? Can we come out of the, the hovel now? Is it time for Puxatani Phil to actually come out and enjoy uh, something other than long walks alone or with your immediate family? I wasn't going on cruises before, so some people like them. This doesn't apply. Amanda Jackson writes, two Carnival cruise ships returned to the port of Galveston in Texas last Sunday. After over a year away, the return of the ships offers a glimmer of hope for the travel industry, which has taken a huge hit during the pandemic. The two ships, Carnival Breeze and Carnival Vista, arrived at the port at around noon local time, and port officials had invited the public to come celebrate their return. We are so excited to finally have our ships back home, reads a Facebook post by the Port of Galveston. We've been granted approval to allow the community public access to the dock in between Cruise Terminal 1 and 2 for the special event. Heather Lucky, a travel agent, told CNN she was brought to tears when she saw the ships arrive. It's a symbolic sign that travel is coming back, she said. We're on the cusp of a travel boom, and I'm here for it. I think we are on the cusp of a travel boom, OG. We've reported the last few weeks that you should probably get that rental car early. You should probably get your plane tickets and now it looks like if you're planning a cruise, you should probably get that plan too. It's interesting though. I saw people having a real debate on Facebook about this and about cruising in general. And initially it was really negative. People going, I don't cruise. I don't want anything to do with the cruise. And definitely as we are still in a pandemic, don't want anything to do with uh, being on a cruise ship right now. However, I remember, and these numbers have probably changed that some years ago when I was looking at Carnival Cruise Lines, diving into their numbers, I believe the number was 92% of people that go on a cruise, cruise again. Oh, wow. So the majority of their advertising is not to people to go again. It's to people that have never cruised before, which is why you see when you see these Carnival Cruise commercials mm-hmm. or whichever cruise line, you see, you see all these fun things and all this stuff that if you've never been on a cruise is meant to change your perception of going on one. Cause they know all they got to do is probably get you on one. Hmm. Well then I'm doing myself a favor by not going ever. So why? Cause if you go on one, you'll go on two. Yeah. Yeah. I'm saving money. So don't, uh, don't break the pocketbook that way. I want to go on, maybe this is a sign of getting older, but, but I want to go on like those European riverboat yeah. cruises, you know, like the Viking cruises. Mm-hmm. Those look awesome. Especially if you can get off from time to time and see the land the entire time. Talking to friends of mine on those, one friend said that there was a bar on the top of his cruise ship and uh, they were pulling into Budapest at midnight and uh, he's just up there with a bottle of wine as they're pulling into Budapest. That's pretty cool. Yes, he said the lights uh, and the castle or palace. I've never been there. 
but just, just beautiful and, uh, and had a front row seat to a lot of the sites. As people return to travel, OG, let's talk about planning for travel and not travel agent planning. Like we've had some travel experts on, but do you think that you handle this? Like you do a fund for the holidays where you start putting a little money away every month, set a, a fund aside and plan your trip that way, like zero budget. I think it depends on, on your personality. I was just talking to somebody about this last week and I am not the person who can December 30th remember that, okay, my property taxes are due. And oh, by the way, I was disciplined enough to like mentally keep track of it over the year. Like I have to take my property taxes, every paycheck and put it in a separate account to build out that, okay, when the property taxes are due, it's right here and I can pay, you know, there's no stress, whatever. I have a hobby that I do that pays some money in the fall. And uh, we use some of that as our Christmas budget. Like that's how we just think about it. When I finish up the fall and I've got some money from this activity that I do, Mrs. OG gets a wad full of hundreds. (laughs) Like this is our Christmas budget for the year, you know, for, for us and for the, all the extended family and everything. So So that's how we check that box off. But some people don't have that. You know, some people can just spend how they want to spend and have that work out in their budget. I I, I think it just kind of depends on, uh, you know, from a personality standpoint, how you are. I'm with you. I make it a game. Uh, The first thing I do is I take my reward points. Well, the first thing I do is I book the trip far enough away. So right now we have Japan coming, hopefully at the end of October. And I take my reward points and I allocate the reward points to buy up as many things as possible and knock them off my list. So I know that I've got 12 days in hotels in Japan and I check the box on, okay, I got this night covered. I got this night covered. I got this night covered. And then on my plane ticket, I've got business class on the way there. We're going to sit with, with the commoners on the, on the way home. And then I try to take on extra freelance jobs to then pay for the individual nights and I make it a game. So I will pay for then the next hotel. And, the, and it's the way I think about it. I'm like, okay, if I do this thing, that's going to pay for the next two nights hotels. And I go reserve those hotels the second that that money comes in. And now I know that I've got three nights paid for. Yeah. And then I know I got the next night paid for. And it's really neat. We did that on our trip to Bavaria. I don't know if I told you that we went to Bavaria and uh, paid for it a little piece at a time. And it was really neat. Ended up with a Mercedes convertible, riding the romantic road, staying in some nights, some really nice places, some nights, some uh, even called them moderate places might be pushing it a little bit. But by doing it side gig by side gig, didn't hit my budget at all. And it was actually really fun to plan for it. Yeah. When we've gone to Disney in the past, kind of the same thing you pay for it kind of as the year is leading up to it. And then you get your, you know, basically you're getting a food bill and a souvenir bill at the end of the trip, as opposed to the whole thing. And here's the five nights in the hotel and here's all your park tickets. And it's like, no, it's, you know, I mean, we're doing that with the, we're going to go to Florida for a week in June and, and rented a condo that's already paid for. The flights are paid for. Especially with Disney. I think that's super important. Well, with Disney, you need a, you either need to start saving now if you're thinking about going to Disney sometime in the next 20 years, you should start saving now for it <laughs> or put your application in for your line of credit at your, uh, at your bank, <laughs> at your, at your local credit union. Speaking of credit unions, OG, it is military appreciation month. Did you know that? Of course you did. 
I did. Navy Federal Credit Unions made it their mission to help their military members for over 85 years during Military Appreciation Month. They want to celebrate the commitment that connects them to their military members. What I love about being a member of Navy Federal is that they've got so many things, not just the basic stuff that you think about when you think about membership, but they also have things that surprise me that I've talked about in the past, like theme park tickets, as an example, at a discount because you're a Navy Federal member. Many of their employees are military family members like Cheryl and I are reservists or veterans themselves, like my dad. They offer resources like Best Cities After Service and Best Careers After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life. It's funny, my nephew, Colin, goes into the Navy, immediately signs up Navy Federal Credit Union so he knows that he's got his paycheck deposited in the right place. It's with a safe institution that he trusts. He gets an automatic savings account so he's able to put money away in savings and not just have it all sitting there and checking. And it really helps. They have 24 seven customer service and support. So they're here for you whenever you need them. So whether it's somebody OG like you, my brother-in-law, Eric, my dad, my nephew, if you're at all connected to a service member, you may be able to join too. So visit navyfederal.org forward slash celebrate to check out all the member exclusive offerings during military appreciation month, or you can share your shout out with hashtag Mission Military Thanks, Navy Federal Credit Union, insured by NCUA. This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Two big headlines today. Travel starting to come back. Cruise lines. We've we've talked rental cars. I feel like we're checking the boxes. We talked airplanes first. Then we had a headline about rental cars and now we do cruise ships, that headline, and then Bitcoin and annuities. What's your biggest takeaway today? Uh, don't put Bitcoins in your annuities. <laughs> I would have to agree with that one as well. I think we have a winner chicken dinner right there. historical segments on this show because as people way smarter OG than you and I have said if you don't know history you are bound to repeat it and we can learn so much not just about the world and our country but also about how successful people that already did the things that you and I want to do achieve the results that they got and the other thing that history provides for me is surprises and lessons that I didn't even know that I needed that seemed to come just in time. And an expert at sharing that history is, of course, Zachary Carabell. He's the founder of 
the Progress Network at New America, president of River Twice Capital. He's an author. He's a columnist. His books usually are around money. His last book before this was The Leading Indicators, A Short History, The Numbers That Rule Our World. And now he's going to talk to us about this firm, Brown Brothers Harriman, which many of you probably haven't heard of, but Brown Brothers OG has been there for everything. You can track Brown Brothers from two of our U.S. presidents, secretaries of state, the creation of the Pentagon, the advent and heavy usage of paper money in America, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad and the prevalence of a railroad. Of course, that's the first railroad in the United States. So as much as this is a history of a money management institution, it is in a lot of ways the history of money in America. So let's say hello and dive in with Zachary Carabell. And here he is walking down the stairs to the basement. I'm sure he just lost a mom at, uh, at Canasta. Zachary Carabell joins us. How are you, man? I didn't, I didn't bet quite as much as what you got behind you. So, uh, that's good. <laughs> I was going to say, you, you don't look terribly beaten up. So that's, that's great. Yeah. Well, limit your losses. That was, we'll get into that That was a Brown brothers creed. So I did that with Canasta too. Well, and there's so much to talk about here. I want to ask you about everything, but I think that, that, that what we should do is, is begin at the beginning as I'm reading the beginning of your book and I'm thinking about, I know a little bit about Brown brothers, Harriman. It always seems to be in the dark recesses of, of my memory. And you point that out in the book that so many people go, have I heard of this firm? Are they, are they still around? What do they do? But at the very beginning of the book, you bring up, you bring up a couple names, you bring up the name Bush Prescott Bush, I believe is his name. And you bring up the name George Herbert Walker. And I think to myself, this is on page two of your introduction. And I think Zachary, those two names in one place. And I know those names. This must be some type of a coincidence here, but it isn't. This in some form is the Bush family history. It certainly is the the history of the Bush family fortune and the legacy of it. But it's a lot more than that. I mean, I think that's something that's a good hook because it's something people recognize. What they don't recognize is just how influential this largely family partnership until the mid 20th century and then a private partnership since has been woven into the fabric of American history. You know, my joke when I wrote the book is that it was a little like Zelig, that there was in every important moment in American history, a Brown Brothers banker on the second row back left, who was not front and center and not the story because they didn't want to be the story. But they were lubricating the wheels. They were making sure that everything that needed to get done got done, including a lot of stuff, by the way, that we probably didn't want to get done, like the cotton trade and slavery. So it's not an unvarnished celebration of a complicated legacy. But they are present at the creation, as Dean Hatchison said about that group at the end of World War II. I was surprised to even see them appear a little bit in the Drexel Burnham stuff and and Michael Milken. Yeah, which was kind of their their bastard stepchild from Glass-Steagall in 1934. Everybody had to decide, are they going to be a commercial bank or an investment bank? And Brown Brothers, which was newly Brown Brothers Harriman because of a merger at the time, decided they were going to be a commercial bank because that's where a lot of their business was. So they hived off their investment bank, unlike Lehman Brothers, which became an investment bank. Over time, after merger, after merger, after merger, that Brown Brothers Harriman investment bank becomes Drexel Burnham Lambert. They merge with Drexel, they merge with Lambert, they merge with 
Burnham. And it makes for nice framing of the book because a lot of my point is this old partnership model of financial capitalism, which limited risk because you could only risk what you individually could stand to lose, kind of gives birth to the junk bond, the drunken capital party of the 1980s and onward is an offshoot of this firm kind of steeped in rectitude and limitation of risk. So I just, I found that an amazing kind of parallel. Well, what I find amazing is, and to your point, I had no idea that there were Brown Brothers people that literally <laughs> standing in all of these spots, as you mentioned earlier. But also, I found it fascinating that not only every point in history, there was a Brown Brothers person involved, but also I'm fascinated by your involvement. How did you come across this. I love when I talk to authors about how they stumble on this story. Did you know that they had been in the corner of all these rooms or did you find that out as you were researching? I mean, I knew certainly that they had been woven into what we now call the establishment in the middle of the 20th century, that there were a bunch of Brown Brothers partners, Prescott Bush, among them, a man named Robert Lovett, who was really famous in his time, but most people don't remember, who was actually George Marshall's number two at the State Department, then Defense Department, and then became Secretary of Defense, and Avril Harriman himself, who was sort of woven into every important policy decision from the Roosevelt administration through the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. So I knew they were important at that time. I wasn't as aware of just how fundamental they were to the evolution of American capitalism in the 19th century. And kind of one of the joys of writing the book was... I, I really thought when I sat down to write the book that I was writing a story about how money made America and how this group of, of partners at in the 20th century kind of created the architecture for, for the global international system, you know, the World Bank, the United Nations, the World Trade Organization, the Pentagon, the CIA, you name it. Uh, what I didn't realize is, is how much the 19th century kind of mattered in that story and how much Brown Brothers really kind of created the paper money system we have today. That may be overstating it a little, but I'm, you know, an author who wrote a book. So it's kind of my job to overstate <laughs> their their impact. I don't know. It just sounds like a fun journey to me. Let's start off then with Alexander Brown. He's he's not in the United States. He's in Ireland. Tell me about this man that it's the beginning of this entire dynasty. So, you know, not for the first time, not for the last. Uh, an Irish merchant gets caught up in the troubles of Ireland. He's a Belfast linen merchant. And the first of what is going to be, you know, wave after wave of uh, sectarian violence between uh, Northern Irish Protestants and Southern Catholics, and then Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland. So he he gets out of Dodge, or Dodge in this case being Belfast, and he has relatives who had already gone to Baltimore. So he he shows up in Baltimore in 1800 and sets up shop as a linen importer from Ireland. You know, before that, he'd been a linen exporter from Ireland. So he starts importing fine linens from Ireland. And like most great American stories, this begins with an immigration story. And from that, you get the slow, steady evolution of what becomes Brown Brothers. It's Alexander Brown and his four sons. So the Brown Brothers are the four sons of this Irish linen merchant who are farmed out to different parts of the trade routes the most important being Liverpool. So Liverpool is the axis of British trade in 1800 through the late 19th century. And it's from there that 
the cotton business grows. So they morph from a linen merchant to a cotton merchant in Baltimore and then eventually New York, Philadelphia. And so the four sons each get a city. I was fascinated. I'm glad you brought up his four sons because I was fascinated with Alexander's commitment to education. And you make that very clear. Even, even when they're in Ireland, he wants to send his kids to good schools. Initially though, they're absolutely horrible students, which I thought was kind of a funny story. Yeah. I mean, it's one of these classic, uh, they think they have smart kids, but, but the teachers think they're stupid. And after a couple of years of trying to do everything, cajoling them, punishing them, and punishing meant, you know, some corporal punishment, but they weren't, you know, abusive. They were just, they were parents of their time. And the kids are just not learning. And the teachers are really frustrated. And then somehow one of them figures out that he's incredibly nearsighted and that the issue was that they couldn't read, not because they were not able to, but they literally couldn't because they couldn't see. And that became into brown family lore, you know, brown sight. So they all get glasses and then they're fine. That's that's so interesting. But on education, he's committed to education. His his wife, who you mention in the book very strongly, I think, is in the background all the time uh, yeah. when her sons have problems, when the family has problems. She's definitely a key figure in the family. But the two of them together, Zachary, have a code of conduct and have some of these principles. Can you talk about some of the Brown family principles that Alexander has? That Because not many families last generation to generation. We talk about right. intergenerational wealth a lot on the show. This family's an outlier where the money does yes. last. And it's kind of this bedrock thing you talk about. So it is extraordinary to me when I wrote the book that by the late 1930s, when the firm stops being run by the Brown family, so it's run by the Brown family for about 130 years, but that that culture remains deeply embedded in the firm today in, in 2021, unlike most families, like there's, there are no black sheeps. Like there's no kid who, you know, shows up in a house of ill repute in 1870 that has to like get bailed out. There's no ne'er-do-well. There's no incredibly greedy one. It's like they are unbelievably cut from the same cloth generation after generation after generation. I'm, and I'm thinking as you're saying that, I just got done reading, um, uh, I'm not going to get his name right. I believe it's J.T. Sykes. Uh, yeah, huge, T.J. Sykes. T.J. Sykes, thank you. Uh, huge book did. on Cornelius Vanderbilt, right? Yeah, and, Styles. T.J. Styles. T.J. Styles, thank you. Yes, that's it. There are, Great. and a mammoth read, by the way, as yeah. well. But the Vanderbilt family is black sheep all over it. I mean, right. almost immediately. And you just don't get that with the Browns. And I'm, I'm sure there's there's luck and contingency in all of this. One of the grandsons of Alexander Brown, John Crosby Brown, who starts running the firm in the late 19th century, and his son, Thatcher, who becomes the next kind of managing partner, they all go to Yale. That was sort of part of the, that's what you did, just the Prescott Bush did and Robert Lovett. So they're all Yaleys. And there's a way in which this becomes a story of a cosseted closed elite, right? That all go to the same schools and intermarry. Anyway, the big crisis in young Thatcher's life is trying to figure out whether he should smoke. And he's writing his father all these kind of torturous letters of, you know, dear Pater. I mean, he doesn't say Pater, but he just seems, he certainly could have. <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, it's, it, I think it'll be fine. I'm just going to smoke with friends. I, I hope you understand. I'll be smart. I won't spend too much money. And the father is kind of writing him the way Alexander Brown wrote to his kids in this Polonius, poor Richard, set of homilies, right? All I mean, it's like generations of 
neither a borrower nor a lender be, you know, trust, trust is easily lost and hard won, know your clients, uh, when faced with a risk that is too much, don't take it. I mean, it's, it's amazing, right? And it's a little bit droney, like, but it is deeply woven in. And so, you know, John Crosby writes to his son, my, you know, my son, you have to consider the implications of smoking and what reputation you'll have. And his son finally writes him back and says, you know, dear father, I've decided not to smoke till I'm 21. And, and I thought, look, if this is your greatest step out, like if this is your act of rebellion, Getting you know, crazy. you're in a pretty ramrod, you're in a pretty <laughs> ramrod, straight rectitude family. I love that. In fact, there's another story about Alexander's uh, wife, Grace, I believe is her name. Grace, Grace Brown. That one of the sons goes running to Grace because something bad happened and she gives him an unexpected rebuke. Yeah, I don't know if it's during the War of 1812 when, as we know, Baltimore almost gets occupied. The famous Fort McHenry, which leads to the Rockets Red Glare and the Star Spangled Banner. They moved everything out of Baltimore because they were worried that if the British occupied, they'd burn all the stores, they'd burn the warehouses, and they'd lose all their – basically their capital was in their trade. And I think one of the sons got worried, you know, got really nervous, like, oh, my God, what's going to happen? And she basically said, you know, no, no son of mine will panic. There, there was not a lot of, you know, oh, my poor baby yeah. here. It was, it was yeah. much more like, shape up, man. Yeah. I did not want to have a son that's going to panic here. You're going to bear it well or whatever. Yeah. It's good that you mentioned Grace. I mean, honestly, though, this is, uh, for better and for worse, a history of white men. And I'm, you know, in today's era, that has its own set of questions and challenges. But but the reality is white men made a lot of our history for for better and for worse. And it's hard to um, overlook that. And there aren't a lot of women. You know, the, there were no women partners. If they were there, they were there in the background, exerting influence that is unrecorded. That's why I think somebody like an Abigail Adams was such an outlier, right? Controlling right. the family's money. Let's talk about the four worse part of that, because they are heavily involved in cotton. Yep. Cotton obviously means then they're supporting the slave trade. Talk about yep. their exposure to cotton and how they were involved in cotton and then consequently with slaves. So Baltimore was their initial hub, and it's where Alexander Brown lives his life and dies in 1834. And then the locus of the house shifts to New York, but the primary money is being made by the 1820s in the cotton trade, with one of the sons, William Brown, in Liverpool, and then and then agents, factors, they called them, in New Orleans and Mobile and, and Montgomery. You know, Baltimore was a, was a, was a slave city, uh, although most of the African-Americans in Baltimore by the 1830s and 1840s were free. So my point about all this is they are deeply complicit in the slave system. They profit mightily from cotton. They're the largest cotton merchant by the 1830s. And then they underwrite a lot of the cotton trade through these letters of credit, which were a, a paper instrument that facilitated trade. That being said, the entire North in the United States in the 1830s and 1840s was complicit in the cotton economy and the slave economy, whether it was profiting from the manufacture of cloth, whether it was selling and then buying cloth that was made in Lancashire and Manchester. I don't recall that William Lloyd Garrison, the famous abolitionist, abjured wearing cotton clothing. I think John Brown, the more zealous, you know, who, who did the, the raid on Harper's Ferry, I think he actually might have. But it's equivalent today to many of us are deeply concerned about the effects of a carbon economy. Very few of us live off the grid in a yurt in Alaska. 
I, I'm not sugarcoating this by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just saying the economy of the 1830s and 1840s and 1850s was complicit in the slave system. Hence, I think why there was an awareness that that couldn't continue. And and I was wondering as I was reading Zachary that you write about how they're writing back and forth about how uh, around the War of eighteen twelve, there are these privateers that are working as as really navy vessels, right, to help yeah. the United States ward off the British. And the Browns were definitely against that. And you must have found a lot of writing back and forth about them talking about that. Did you ever find any writing about slavery, about a discuss- family discussions around slavery at all? Uh, I mean, a little bit. They, they signed some uh, petition in the mid 1840s opposing. Well, first opposing the way Texas was both independent and then joining the Union and then opposing the Mexican War. Because they were rightly concerned that this could be a, a, a pretext for the extension of slavery into the Western territories. They are card-carrying founding members of the Republican Party in the 1850s. The, the Browns in New York were sort of socially in the same world as William Seward, who was one of the founding uh, grandees of the Republican Party. They do not write a lot about slavery. And I think part of it is, you know, maybe those letters weren't preserved it was too close. They're, they're clear by the 1850s. They want to get it out of the physical cotton trade. They justify that in terms of they don't want to have their wealth bound up in physical assets. But I think it's also with an awareness that there was something untenable about it, but they're not rip roaring abolitionists by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, for a brief period of time in the 1840s, actually are absentee owners of, of a few Southern plantations because they had lent money to those planters who had then defaulted on their debts. And then they unloaded them as quickly as they can. Speaking of the banker side of this, we've got them involved in textiles on one side. On the other side, it morphed into bankers, becoming bankers, really. Uh, How did that change happen? Was it just naturally over time by extending credit? Or was it a a planned move because they were making more money in that area? I think a little bit of both. Um, It was opportunistic, but it was also a recognition of Merchants who traded in physical goods were always vulnerable to prices shifting between the time in which you acquired the goods and the time in which you sold them, particularly in a time when it took a longer time to ship goods. You were limited by scale. You know, if you if you built and bought a lot of ships to carry your own goods, those ships could sink, they could be seized. The vagaries were immense. And so you could both spread risk and augment your business by underwriting other people's trade and becoming a facilitator, which is essentially how they become a bank from having been a merchant. It it truly feels like then, Zachary, an extension of Alexander's conservative nature that made them bankers. I remember somebody telling me one time that bankers don't make a lot of money on every deal. They just make money on every deal. Right. And they make a little bit and it's rigorous. And, And the Browns were unusually systematic in assessing the risk of their clients. You know, we think about, you know, today where most people just will do business with anybody if someone wants to do business with them. Brown Brothers never embraced that idea. They were always careful about who they took on as clients. And I think that's a little bit of an unfamiliar idea for us today, right? We think about it in terms of, oh, I want, I want to hire someone. So I'll, I'll talk to three or four people and I'll pick. For them, it was almost the reverse. You know, you want us to work for you. We're going to interview you and assess whether or not you're a good credit risk for us. 
I, I have 75 things on my notes. Uh, I, I want to ask you just briefly about the Brown family and railroads because yeah. railroads then also figure prominently into their building of wealth. It's interesting. They are the progenitors of the first railroad in the United States, the first steam-powered engine pulling passenger and freight cars on iron tracks, and that's the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, the B&O of Monopoly fame that starts in Baltimore and then goes over into the Ohio Valley, hence Baltimore and Ohio. And they did this because New York was plowing ahead economically because of the opening of the Erie Canal and a better port. And it was kind of a last gasp effort to make Baltimore viable economically compared to Philadelphia and New York. And it's underwritten by Alexander and by one of his sons. And they're also officers of the main bank in Baltimore. But they make no money on it. It's really a public works project meant to preserve and augment Baltimore. And that also is a kind of a brown creed. You know, they recognize that the commons matters, that if, the, if their community doesn't thrive, they ultimately will not thrive kind of a lost mantra in our world today. But by the time the railroad boom of the late 19th century comes around, they're kind of nowhere to be found because most of that railroad boom was intensely speculative. You, know, you talked about Vanderbilt before. Vanderbilt had made his money on steamships and then made his money with selling things into. But most of the people who made money on railroads were the ones who picked up the pieces after the initial investors in railroads went bust. So the J.P. Morgans and the Fricks and all these, and E.H. Harriman, who is April's father. And the Browns just, it's too speculative for them. So it's interesting that they preserve, part of the reason why I think they actually survive as long as they do, is because they, they don't go to the high highs. They know what risk is too much risk for their appetites. So they don't participate in the 1880s and 1890s. You know, they do some deals as tagalongs to other people's deals. But it's fascinating because you would think that was the only game in town then. You'd think if you're going to get rich and survive, you had to be in the railroads. And they pretty much weren't. You've been in the investment community for quite a while, Zachary. Did any of this research, any of the inside money work that you did change your own view on investing? No, but it solidified a lot of it. Okay. I and mean, I think so. I have a line at the end, which is the problem of uh, financial capitalism in the past 30 years isn't that there was some risk. It's that risk merged into the center as opposed to being on the periphery. And what I mean by that is a world. So Brown Brothers is the absolute picture of like rectitude. Make sure that what every time you go to bed at night, be prepared for the world to change tomorrow in a bad way. So whatever exposure you have to whatever, you know, there could be a pandemic tomorrow. There could be a bankruptcy. There could be a collapse. There could be a war always be ready for that. And that that is a kind of a prudence that mitigates against too much speculation. You don't want a world that is only Brown Brothers. And you certainly don't want a financial world that's only Brown Brothers. They never would have funded Elon Musk, and they probably wouldn't have funded some of the early internet. And so you, you want some capital that goes toward a dream and a hope, which is inherently speculative. But you don't want that mentality, the junk bond mentality, to be at the heart of the system. You want it to be on the outskirts of the system. And you want the heart of the system to be a conservative, again, small c, choke point, where people's dreams and greed is kept in check because money is powerful. Money is like the energy in the atom. And you, you've got to be mindful that it can create, but it can destroy. And that's from Alexander Brown's letters to his sons all the way to the present. Brown Brothers was acutely aware that money 
is an incredibly potent alchemy. And you want to be mindful of that as opposed to promiscuous about it. And uh, that's my two cents about the lessons of Brown Brothers. The book is called Inside Money, Brown Brothers, Harriman, and the American Way of Power. Uh, we mostly dove into the first half of chapter one. So people people that are interested in the story have a long way to go because there's so much here. I, I'm assuming it's available everywhere. It is available everywhere. And there's an audio book that I read, which uh, was a first time for me too. So if you like the, if you like the sound of my voice and you want to have it for 15 hours, you can get the audio book. If you got a long drive ahead or just break it up Very like long. I did. That's, that's how exactly. I did the Vanderbilt book, by the way. Um, yeah, so. I don't know with inside money, I just found myself flipping pages and flipping and I couldn't stop. And it was, it was a good read. Thank you so much, cool. man, for talking Thank about uh, the backbone of America, really in a lot of ways. Thanks a ton. Thank you. Stackers, I'm your pal Joe's mom's neighbor Doug, and maybe these Brown brothers are on to something with paper money. I mean, who needs to make money when you can make money? Know what I mean? So let me introduce you to the world's newest crypto phenomenon, Dugcoin. It's the revolutionary digital currency that allows you to exchange money without Joe's mom's exorbitant fees. I tell you, those fees are criminally arbitrary. Uh, like like 25 bucks as a stairs usage fee and only applied just before her Harley needs oil. C- crazy timing, am I right? So I desperately need to get this crypto off the ground. But before I do, let's crank up today's trivia. Since we talked all about the Brown Brothers today and since they helped bring us the first U.S. railroad system, What is the biggest railroad in the U.S. today from a revenue perspective? I'll be back with your answer nearly as fast as my Doug coins going to blast off to the moon. Well, you know, when I think about Navy Federal, I think about the veterans that have done so much for our country And I also think about some of our active service members want to say a special shout out to uh, my nephews, Colin and Nathan, who are both in the Navy. Colin is stationed outside Seattle, Washington on a submarine. And my nephew, Nathan, is in South Africa as an air traffic controller. And in Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants you also to celebrate members many of whom go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. It's all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their family are eligible for Navy Federal membership. They offer 24-7 help from their U.S.-based member service. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate to see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, equalizing lender. Well, if you're new to Stacking Benjamins, you may not know that I've tried out a lot of personal finance apps. I like to be a guinea pig and try out all these things. So I know what I'm talking about when it comes to uh, what's helpful and what isn't helpful. And the app that I've used the longest has been Monarch Money. And it's because Cheryl and I, my spouse, were able to collaborate together 
We can work on our goals together and our budget and our goals are right next to each other on the app. It is clearly the next generation of personal finance apps. So what is it? Monarch is the top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, because you're a stacker, you'll get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. I love the fact that we get to collaborate. I love the fact that it's customizable. And I also love that it's this ad-free privacy you can trust. They never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch myself, I totally get why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, because you're a stacker, you're going to get an extended 30-day free trial to try it out like I try out many different apps. And this one was sticky for me because, well, you'll see when you try out the 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash Benjamins for your extended 30-day free trial. Hey, stackers, it's me, your resident tech sensation, neighbor Doug. You may be asking, how are we mining my new amazing Doug coin? Well, that's a great question. Person I made up for this story. All the neighbor kids ever talk about is Minecraft, so why not piggyback on all that digital love and tweak their addiction to something I'm rolling out called Doug Minecraft? Kill two birds with one stone, I say. The kids can sit in front of a screen all day, and we all know how much they love their screens. I pay these chump kids a quarter of a tenth of a Doug coin per hour. We're all going to be rich. Well, I mean, you know, except the kids. Then all I got to do is call up my buddy Elon Musk, Tesla, ever heard of it? And have old Easy e drop a few fire tweets about DugCoin. If I know me and my sales skills, DugCoin will dominate before breakfast tomorrow. Before I go share our mutual strategy with old Muskie, let's get you your trivia answer. The question was, what is the biggest railroad in the U.S. from a revenue perspective? Coming in at number three with $10.58 billion in revenue is CSX. At number two, with $19.52 billion in revenue, is Union Pacific. And at number one, with $20.87 billion in revenue, is BNSF, which stands for Burlington Northern and Santa Fe Railway. It's time for me to go fire off my Doug Coin tweet storm. See ya! I thought for sure you were going to say Union Pacific. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I said Amtrak, so I don't know. What's what's the railroad behind your house that blares the horn at four uh, in the morning? Yeah, it definitely wasn't Amtrak. Amtrak is probably the smallest in the uh, United States. Kansas City something. Kansas City Southern. They go by my house here too. Big thanks to Zachary Carabell and OG. This this firm, this firm, I was so surprised to see. I, I wasn't surprised to see so much power concentrated in places that you don't see it, right? that a lot of these families are very conservative and that being conservative has brought them a long way. And this idea that bankers make money on every deal, they just make a little money, make a little money, make a little money. And what it says to me, and I know he had his takeaway. My takeaway is I think many people out there forget the long game, right? They forget the save a little bit of money 
put it in the right spot, save a little money, put it in the right spot and how that pays huge dividends. Yet most of the people that you work with that are in retirement that were successful, that's how they got there. It was not YOLOing into Dogecoin like we talked about on Monday. I was just talking to somebody today about this. I think you can have fun with both. You can do the slow play. We were talking about all these random crypto things, you know, and uh, if I would have put $17 in this, it'd be worth 10 million or whatever. I said, well, just do both. Like do, do the right thing, which is the long game of I'm going to put money in my 401k and I'm going to put money in my Roth and my HSA and I'm going to diversify it and, you know, do the boring stuff. And then if you also have YOLO money or if you also have, well, maybe it's FOMO money actually, you know, it's yeah, just like right. extra money. Then you can say, yeah, put a hundred bucks on, on, on this thing, whatever it is. Right. Or I'm going to put a $500 on like, like if you have extra and you can afford it, you know, people say there's some people that don't like going to the casino and I'm wasting money. It's only wasting money if you don't view it as entertainment. And if it's an entertainment, if it's no different than any other entertainment that you would do, it could be approximately the same cost. You know, you go get tickets to go see Pearl Jam, <laughs> your ticket costs get to cost the same as going to the casino for the night. You know, it's the same deal, just different entertainment. But if you're going to the casino going, I haven't saved anything for retirement, so this better work out. Like, you're never going to make, you're, it's not going to be successful that way. So do it the right way. Do it the boring way. Make a little bit on every deal. And then if you feel like throwing a hundred bucks on some safe moon, do it. I'm with you because I feel like the problem is not these fun bets. The problem is, is the evidence of people in a casino that aren't paying their rent. And instead of entertainment, it's desperation or yeah. people that are taking their entire retirement, like we talked about on Monday and popping into the Dogecoin. That just, that's, that's going to end badly. Going to be ugly. Of course, it, it it ends badly right after it ends really, really well for that dude that we talked about on Monday. Oh my, oh my, 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 my. Good stuff. By the way, not only will we have everything that we talked about during our headlines and with uh, Zachary Carabell in our show notes page, but we also have additional notes and additional resources in the stacker, our email. So if you are following along there, you also have some additional interviews by, by Zachary. And if you'd like those for next time, like to join us, stackingbenjamins.com forward slash stacker. Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline OG and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first. I'm trying to figure out what uh, website I can, actually, I'm trying to figure out what website to have my son go to, to put all of his college funds into like random crypto stuff. So that's what I'm really working on right now. That's an important thing. Uh, between that and the Bitcoin and my annuities, set for life. I thought you were just going to say Bitcoin and annuities. There it is. Or as they say, funding secured. <laughs> it, it says here, your loved ones in your time, but I think I like yours better. It's why they made buying quality term life insurance actually simple. Head to stackybedjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now and you'll get a free quote. You can pause it right now. Get this done. If you need life insurance, you will find very quickly their application simple. It's online. You get an instant coverage decision, affordable prices like the Brown Brothers covering your bases, being conservative, get the insurance that you need in place and don't have regrets later. Stackybedjamins.com forward slash Haven Life for more. Today, we're going to 
throw out the lifeline to our friend Jason. Say hi, Jason. Hey, guys. If I want to have my mortgage paid off before, quote, retiring in 10 years, should I stop investing in a Roth and instead invest in a taxable brokerage? Our income is low enough that qualified dividends wouldn't be taxed, and I could do tax gain harvesting periodically to step up our basis without taxes. When we retired, we would be living off the income from a 457 account, and we might even decide not to pay our house off then, but I'd like to have the ability to. Right now, the only downsides I can see are that we'd be giving up the $400 savers credit after a couple of years, and tax law changes could impact our plan. Am I missing anything? Thanks for the help. I'd appreciate it if you guys could send a sleeveless shirt. It'll save me the time of cutting off the sleeves myself. <laughs> Thanks for the call, Jason. Keeping it classy with a K right there. Yep. That's the way we like it. OG, what are you thinking? Stop putting money in the Roth IRA. Say it ain't. So, it's, you can't say yes. You got to keep putting money in the Roth because it's a tax shelter, and I gotta, I gotta maximize all my tax shelters all the time. Or else the people will come after us, whoever they are. The the checkbox people, where I checkbox that I've optimized everything. If Jason doesn't get his stuff optimized, it'll end horribly. He'll never make it. Yeah, yeah. I um, I think this just really depends on like what's most important. Because he started out by saying, yeah, I, want, I think I want to pay my house off before I retire in 10 years. And then at the very end, he went, or maybe I don't. I don't think that you want to make any changes unless you have some firm commitment to the new plan. You've got the Roth going. It's great. Do your thing. Got to love it. If a year from now you go, no, it's really important for us to have this house paid off in nine years when I retire. Then make the change, be affirmative with it, and allocate the money to the house, not to a brokerage account. It's not about that. Like use the tool that you want to use to get to the outcome that you want to get. If you want the house paid off, pay the house off. Take the next eight or nine years to pay the house off. Now all the math people in the universe are going, wait, 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 no, it's a tax shelter. And you could pay for many, many, many house payments with a Roth contribution and it grows tax free. And hopefully it's grown at a rate greater than your, then your mortgage rate and all that other sort of jazz. All that's true. But if it's up to you and you go, but I want my house paid off, then pay your stinking house off and be okay with it. But if you're not certain yet, I don't know that I would make any changes. What I really like that Jason's already done is research some of the downsides, what he'd give up. I think that with the Roth IRA, one of the upsides he gives up is that he could still pay a fair amount of it off. If, he, if he's wishy-washy right now, here's what he could do with his Roth OG. The money that he puts in it, not the interest, but the contributions that he puts in it, that money he can pull out and put toward his house payment. So it, maybe he won't pay the whole house off, but if he decides to change his mind later, he's going to have a decent chunk of that money available to go ahead and do that plan at a later date if he continues to fund his Roth. Yeah. Uh, so if he's, if he's in this uh, middle ground like you're talking about and not sure if he's going to pay it off or not, well, the Roth does not make it impossible. Um, it makes it harder with the gains that the Roth hopefully makes, but it doesn't make it impossible with the contributions that he puts in. What do you think about Roth versus, let's say he's got a 401k at work. You know, he's putting money into the Roth and he's got a pre-tax account at work and he wants to slow down some of that money to pay off his house. Which one of those two do you slow down first? Yeah, 
I don't know. Tomato, tomato. I mean, you got to keep your 401k contribution to get your company match. That's the free money, no brainer thing. Beyond that, you're just guessing on what tax rates are going to be. I love this discussion of like, what's better? Put it in my 401k pre-tax or put it in my 401k Roth. I don't know. It just depends on what the tax rates are. When are you going to find out what the tax rates are in 2035? Sometime on or about 2035. That's when you'll find out whether or not the strategy that you decided to do in 2021 actually paid out the most optimal way. Are tax rates higher or tax rates lower? Are you making more money or less money at that time? So I think the idea to have the flexibility around it, why not Why not reduce them uniformly? Let's say you're putting $7,000 into your work plan pre-tax. You got $7,000 in your Roth IRA and you want to make a change and put an extra $5,000 on the house. Why don't you reduce each by $2,500? Then you've, you know, you've freed up your $5,000 there. So any sort of person who says, well, this is the only way that makes the most sense has to recognize that at the end of the day, you're still betting on what the future is going to hold from a tax standpoint when you're playing the, the tax rate game. I like Roth IRAs. I like the Roth component because tax-free forever sounds pretty good. But tax deferral today also is really good. So I don't know. Is this where you tell me I'm completely wrong? No, I like the idea of tax flexibility because I totally agree with what you're talking about that uh, we do. We don't know. I also though kind of agree with Ed Slot that just based on math and he even talked about people that are, that have done lots of mathematics around the level of debt that the United States has and the tax system, the way we have it, that the, the only possible way out math wise is for us to have higher tax rates, which means that putting more money in a Roth IRA today, there's a, there's a little bit better than 50, 50 chance that that's probably going to be a better way to go because you're going to move money into a tax-free position in a spot at a time when the probability is as tax rates may go up. Right. But that flexibility of having the ability to do whatever, but that's also what's, what's frustrating Jason, right? Is mm-hmm. it he's thinking he wants more flexibility, but I, I, Jason, I'm totally with OG. If you don't know what you want to do, the tax shelter is still not a bad place to stay because part of that money you'll still be able to get out. Thanks for the question, Jason. And I'll tell you what, we're going to send you a code. And uh, when you go to our friend Brad Lark's company, who makes our wonderful Stacking Benjamin swag, and you can see it at stackingbenjamins.com forward slash shirts. Uh, just write Brad a little note that you'd like him to rip the sleeves off ahead of time. And, and I'm sure Brad, uh, customer service first for Brad, he'll be willing to do that for you or not. I don't know. That's going to do it for today. We got just a couple more things community wise to talk about, which is number one, mom's bragging about somebody again on the fridge. Hope for Phi financial independence gives us five stars fun witty and weight educational too. Oh, I can't wait to see this. This is what mom's bragging about. Hope for five writes. My week isn't complete. If I'm not listening to this podcast, love the witty humor and banner on the show. And I've learned so much in the process and love Paula's afford anything. Can you incorporate the topic of crypto? I, th- I think we've done that a lot lately. Hope for five and the recent extraordinary rise of Dogecoin. Uh, I think we've also talked a bit about that, uh, by the way, Remy Dogecoin rap is hilarious. I think you'd appreciate the humor H in Chicago. H, I'm going to, I'm going to look at that 
And thank you for the suggestion. Thanks also for the kind words. And last, if you are someone who needs better financial planning help in your corner, OG and his team of advisors are taking new clients. So head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash OG, and that will lead you to their calendar and to a meeting where you can talk about your goals and exactly where you're at now and interface with them. Stackingbenjamins.com forward slash OG. All right, that's going to do it for today. Doug, you've got it from here, man. What should we have learned today? So what should we have learned today? First, take a lesson from our headline segment. More and more things are returning to normal, including cruise ships. Get your travel plans ready because there's a big thirst for a lot of people to get out of the house. Second, take a lesson from Zachary Carabell. Enlightened self-interest requires constant balancing between personal gain and the collective good. And of course, the ultimate lesson in a pandemic, the time to prepare for a crisis is before it hits. But the big lesson, I got contacted by some attorney and apparently Doug Coin is a little too close to another prominent coin out there. So I got a, you know, this thing called a cease and desist letter. Sounds like a bunch of doge bags to me. People already profiting off my name and hard work? Come on! They're leeches, I say. To learn more about our guests and for more resources, you can head to our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. To learn more about Brown Brothers Harriman and their impact on American capitalism, check out Zachary Carabell's new book, Inside Money, Brown Brothers Harriman and the American Way of Power. This show is created by Joe Saul Cihai, produced by Taylor Stevens, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I'm a lot deeper than you realize. In fact, sometimes I just stand in front of my mirror and reflect. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remunerations. That's a big word. There's no way you take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial decisions, consult with a real financial advisor. Hey, Hope for Fi, this one is for you, my friend. And this is Remy, Dogecoin Rap. Coming up, bad news for savers, as even those with high-interest savings accounts are seeing their money disappear thanks to inflation. But first, we'll detail every possible thing you could die from. 
He's a rational investor. Dividend digester. Saves some numbers paycheck just like all his ancestors. ancestors. Him looking for high yields? That's never the case. He's seeking 6% returns. Slow and steady wins the race. When he checks his accounts just to see what they're fielding, it's like driving in Maryland. Ain't nobody yielding. What is he to do? He shouldn't be in a drought. So he visits his advisor just to sort it all out. Inflation's higher than your bond rate. That's what I was fearing. So your savings account is slowly disappearing and your CDs are pointless. That's not very funny. What would you like me to do? Put it all in dog money. Dog money, dog money, dog money, dog money. I'm trading it in for dog money, dog money, dog money, dog money, dog money. I'm putting it all in dog money. My 401k is now a 401k9. The sum of my net worth ain't no longer in a straight line. I'm making small fools. I ain't gonna be a pun. I sold my IRA and bought an NFT award. All in on Doge, I dish them out like a Tommy gun. You think I was statehood the way I'm passing on Washington? I feel like Matt Gates. You know what I mean? Assuring everybody it's above 18. Uh, we will, uh, uh, you're gonna want to watch the rest of that, everyone. It's so good. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is military appreciation month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans, and all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.